Father, we are so thankful that we get to come into your presence this morning as your sons and daughters who cry, Abba, Father. And that we don't have a, a spirit of slavery anymore. And we don't need to be afraid, but we can come to you with the confidence of adoption. We can come to you with the confidence of forgiveness. We can come to you with the confidence of full atonement having been made for our sins. And Lord, now you invite us to cast our cares on you because you are our Father and you're a good Father. So Lord, we don't pray this morning because we're afraid you don't know. We don't make our request because we're afraid you don't hear us. Lord, we pray because we're confident in your love for us. We pray because we are confident in your ability to provide for us, and we're confident that you always do what's best for your children. Lord, I know that there are many needs represented in this room right now, and that each of us in ourselves feels a multitude of needs. Lord, I pray that you would minister to us today. God, I pray that you would speak your words to us today. I pray that you would show us who you are today in a way that brings peace and rest to our hearts. And Lord, we pray that as we open your word, that you would do your work. God, we we pray for hearts right now that are tender and soft to who you are, to what you say, and to what you call us to, Father. Lord, we confess that we are unable, and we confess that you are able. And so right now we lean in our inability on your omnipotence. We lean in our need on your provision. We lean in our sinfulness on your sufficiency, God. And we pray that you would speak, and through your speaking, that you would work powerfully in us right now and then through us in our lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to be in Daniel chapter 5, and and you can turn there, and as you do, I'll just start with a little story. It was about a year ago this time that the uh, Golden State Warriors were playing the Cleveland Cavaliers in the NBA Finals for the second year in a row. This is actually the third year in a row now that they are playing, and about a year ago at this time, the Warriors were um, officially the best team ever in basketball. They won 73 out of 82 regular season games, which was the best ever, and they, and they really stormed through the playoffs. And then during the first few games of the series against the Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron James, they really outplayed them. And there was a point where the Warriors were up three games to one, first one to four, won the series. And, and all the commentators were just saying, Cleveland's done, the writing's on the wall. <laughs> Writings on the wall, right? And what happened was LeBron James happened. 
to the Warriors. And, and he came back and he stormed into the Warriors, just completely shook them up. They could not do what they normally do, and, and eventually the, the Cavs came back. And, and what, when we thought the writing was on the wall, it was not, and the Cavs were champions. So this year, the writing really is on the wall, I think, if you watched the first game the other night. But we'll see about that. So that story is not that relevant to the text today, except for that little phrase I'm using, the writing on the wall. I'm sure you've heard that before. The writing's on the wall. It's, it's, it's this phrase that we use just to say it's, it's a sure thing. It's done. It's, it's as good as done. That phrase comes from our text today in the book of Daniel. And so that's really the only reason to share that story besides wanting to um, jab Ryan Howard by saying that the, the, the Cavs are not going to win this year either. But we're going to be in the book of Daniel, and we're going to see where this phrase comes from, the writing on the wall, and we're going to continue the story of Daniel in exile. Now, let me just kind of set the context for us before we start reading, that when we started Daniel a few weeks ago, Daniel is taken in exile as a teenager. He's probably only 17, 18, 19 years old when he is taken from his home in Jerusalem to Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar was at the beginning of his reign, the year is about 605 B.C., and he comes and he conquers Jerusalem, and he takes the best and the brightest from Jerusalem back, and Daniel is one of these young guys. In the last few weeks, we've been seeing Daniel live as an exile in Babylon, and we saw him in his first test, refused to eat the king's food, refused to assimilate into Babylonian culture, and then we saw how God used him over the span of Nebuchadnezzar's reign to reach Nebuchadnezzar, this king, to be an influence for the gospel to this king's heart and for God to save Nebuchadnezzar. But by the time Nebuchadnezzar's story is done, Daniel was probably 40 years old, 50 years old, and, and, we, and he, he had been living in exile. But now, today's story starts by mentioning a king named Belshazzar. And we don't know much about Belshazzar, except that we know he was the last king of Babylon, which means that this story is about 70 years after Daniel was taken into exile. So, so when we read about Daniel in this story, we're not reading about a young teenage boy anymore. We're reading about an elderly man in his late 80s, probably, who has lived his whole life in exile and who, who now is a forgotten man in the kingdom of Babylon. And we're reading about this new king, this young king, this king that is just like his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, and, and we're going to see God do something new but familiar in this king's heart and, and, and through Daniel. And so uh, the, the text is Daniel 5. We're going to look at the whole chapter, and the first section um, is verses 1 through 16. And, and like I said, it's a new king, but it's a familiar scene. So, so read with me in chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. And as we read, I want you to think about the story of Nebuchadnezzar and just make some observations in your mind about what is familiar to you in, this, in these first few verses from what we remember about Nebuchadnezzar. What, what's familiar? So chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Immediately, 
the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, and he declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Let's just pause there for a moment. It's a new story. It's a new king, 70 years later, but it's a very familiar scene to what we've seen with King Nebuchadnezzar. Just, just notice a few things that the narrator drops in here that it, it's like he's telling us. Remember the last story. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar. First, just look at what they're eating and drinking. It's the king's food. It's the king's wine. Here, here they are again. We saw that in chapter 1, that, that Daniel refused to eat the king's food and wine. And here we, we just see that there's this feast of the king, and he's drinking wine, he's eating food. Just, just notice that that's part of the setting here. Second, the, the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem are mentioned. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar went into the temple, and he took out the vessels from that temple to say, we conquered Yahweh, we conquered this God. And now Belshazzar, 70 years later, is saying, bring the vessels that are from the temple in Jerusalem, and, and he drinks the wine out of those vessels. But, but then there's, there's more, right? We, we see in verse 4, this allusion to the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. What does that remind you of? It reminds you of Nebuchadnezzar's vision. In chapter 2 of this statue made of gold and of silver and of bronze and of iron and of clay. This false god that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of. We see an allusion to that as well. We see another vision. This time it comes in a different way. It's not a dream. It's a vision of a hand appearing. Literally a hand appearing and writing on a wall. But it's the same response. that This powerful king is trembling with fear. And, and he's seeking to, for, for someone to come and interpret it. So he calls all of his men, and he calls them to come, come interpret, interpret this, and I'll reward you if you can show me what it means. And, and again, none of them can. None of his wise men can. It, it's so similar to what happened 70 years prior with Nebuchadnezzar. And, and, the, and the author, the narrator, wants us to see that similarity. He wants us to read this story and remember Nebuchadnezzar. He wants us to think about what God did, and he wants us to think about what Nebuchadnezzar, how Nebuchadnezzar responded as we read this story. And so let's keep going in verse 10. Belshazzar is looking for an interpreter, and again, kind of the same old story, but it's got a new twist on it this time. We're looking for Daniel. So verse 10, the queen, who really that word means the predecessor to the, the queen predecessor, this is probably Nebuchadnezzar's wife who is still alive. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called. 
and he will show the interpretation. And so this is Nebuchadnezzar's wife, who's, who's still alive at this time, and she remembers what happened. She remembers Daniel. At, at some point, Daniel must have lost his, his place in the kingdom, because when we last saw Daniel, he was one of those powerful men in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had raised him up. He was chief of the magicians. And at some point, Belteshazzar must have, Belteshazzar must have come and, and done away with the exiles that are part of the kingdom. And said, I don't, I don't want these exiles part of my kingdom. And Daniel was an old, forgotten man. But, she's, but she, she says, Belshazzar, you know about Daniel. And, and it's like she is trying to give the best reference possible, right? She, she, she says he's, he's wise and he has light and understanding. He's excellent spirit, knowledge. He can interpret dreams, solve riddles. You need to call Daniel. You need to call Daniel. Notice she uses his name from Jerusalem, Daniel. She's not calling him what his Babylonian name was, Belteshazzar. She calls him by the name that God gave him. You, you get the sense that when Nebuchadnezzar worshiped God, that she also worshiped God, and she respects Daniel, and she's saying, call Daniel. He can tell this to you. And so in verse 13, Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah. Just picture the scene as we read this, that this is this young, upstart king talking to this elderly man who used to have the power in the kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar had given him interpret dreams, and now he's coming and he's saying, you're that Daniel. You're one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I've heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, they've been brought in before me to read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing... If you can make known to me the interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So this, this Belshazzar does not like Daniel very much, but he has no other options at this point. So he calls that Daniel, he calls that exile from Judah, and he makes him the same offer. He says, listen, they can't do it. If you can, same reward for you. You'll, you'll be the third ruler in the kingdom. I, I will restore you to the place of power that you had. And so, how does Daniel respond to this opportunity? He's, he's, who knows how long he's been this forgotten man in the kingdom, and now he's called back before this new king, and he has this opportunity to interpret this riddle. How does he respond? Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. I, I don't want your gifts. I don't want a purple robe. I don't want a gold chain around my neck. I don't want to be the third ruler in your kingdom. I've been there, and I've done that, and that's not what I'm about anymore. I'm an old man, and I'm looking for my home in God's kingdom. I don't want your gifts. But nevertheless, I'll read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. But what we're about to read is that before Daniel reads the writing and makes known to the king the interpretation, Daniel is going to take the opportunity to confront this king. He doesn't need to do this, but he's going to take the opportunity to speak truth to this king and to tell this king what is going on instead of just read the writing and let it be. So look at what Daniel says in 18 through 23, this bold speech from this elderly Jewish exile to this powerful king. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship, 
and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And so he gives him this history lesson. He says, you, you know this story, Belshazzar. You know that your predecessor, your father, the king, that this happened to him. He was, he was the greatest king in Babylon. He ruled the world. You, you need to know that the Most High God gave him that authority. And the minute that his heart was lifted up, God humbled him. And God made him like a man, like a beast, until he knew that the Most High God rules. And, and so then verse 22 is where he really lays the hammer down. He says, And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. You, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wine, wives and your concubines have drunk wine from then. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. And so he finally confronts him and says, you knew all this. You knew what happened to your father. You knew what happened to your predecessor. You knew that my God is the most high God. You knew that your authority is from him, and yet you chose to reject that. And then tonight, in your revelry and in your boast and your pride, you called for the, for the vessels from his house, and you drank from them, and you declared before all your, all your lords and all your wives, you declared that we conquered this God. You declared that, that this God is weak. You declared that you are stronger than this God, even though you knew all this. You've lifted yourself up against him. You know that this God is the one who holds your breath. You know that every breath you breathe is from this God, and yet you did not humble your heart. You know that all your ways are in him, yet you did not humble your heart. You know that he's the true God, and yet you worshiped false gods who can't see or hear or know. And Daniel says, you knew all this, and yet you did not humble your heart. Verse 24, he finally gives the interpretation. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Those four words literally are numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. And all the, all the Chaldeans, all these, all these guys could read it. This, the, the problem wasn't that they couldn't read it. It was in some other language. The problem was, what is this, 
what does this mean? And really, we hope this doesn't mean what we think it means. And Daniel comes and says, no, this is what it means. It means God has numbered your kingdom. He has numbered your days, and it's over, Belshazzar. He says, you've been weighed in the balances of justice, and you're wanting. And therefore, God has taken your kingdom from you, and he's given it to the Medes and the Persians. And so how does Belshazzar respond to this interpretation? We don't really know what he thought of it, but he agrees that it's true. So Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean Cain was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So Belshazzar fulfills his promise, and he makes Daniel this third ruler in the kingdom of Babylon, but that kingdom of Babylon falls that very night. (laughs) doesn't mean much. The Persians invade, Belshazzar is killed, and Darius the Mede receives the kingdom that very night. And remember in chapter 2, 50 years earlier or so, Daniel had told Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold, but there's another kingdom coming after you. And and now 50 years later, Nebuchadnezzar is gone, but Daniel sees the head of gold give way to the chest and the arms of silver that God had predicted would happen. Daniel's lived to see this. The the great empire of Babylon has fallen, and and the next empire has come come into place, and Belshazzar is killed. So... That's, that's the story of Belshazzar. It's uh, kind of heavy, and we don't really know much more about him besides what we see here. But what we want to do now is, is ask, why is God giving us this story? Why, why did God want his people to have this story? What is he communicating to us here today? And so what we want to do is first just give the main idea of this text, and then four responses that we should have to this text. So the main idea, the sovereign God will righteously judge unrepentant idolaters. And every one of those words is important. So I'm going to read it again. The sovereign God will righteously judge unrepentant idolaters. So let's just take that phrase by phrase. First, the the sovereign God. Why do, we need to, why do we need to make sure that we understand this is the sovereign God? Well, look how Daniel describes him. He says that he is the most high God. He says he's the Lord of heaven. He's, he's the God who gives rulers their power and their authority and their might. He's the God who, who gives kings their kingdoms. And, and he's the God in whose hand is our breath and all our ways. He's the sovereign God. He's the only God. He's, he's the king. God alone is the king And that is who we're talking about here. We're talking about the one and only sovereign God. Now we're also talking about unrepentant idolaters. Now I thought about just using the word sinners, but I think it's important that we see that what's at issue here is idolatry. What's at issue here is what sin is in its essence. Sin in its essence is worshiping false gods. Sin is worshiping what is not really a god. And that's what Belshazzar is doing. He's, he's, He's praising the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. He's, he's praising that which does not see or hear or know instead of the true God. And he's doing it in an unrepentant way. He, he, he knows the true God and he will not repent. He will not humble his heart. He will not acknowledge him. 
Now, this is where I want to draw your attention to the difference between King Nebuchadnezzar and King Belshazzar. Because the truth is, Nebuchadnezzar was also a idolater. Nebuchadnezzar was also worshiping false gods. The, the, the difference between Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar is that Belshazzar never humbled his heart. Nebuchadnezzar was never going to until God humbled his heart. But in the end, Nebuchadnezzar himself did humble his heart. And God holds both responsible for whether or not they humbled their heart. Belshazzar did not humble his heart. That is the charge. You knew, you knew, yet you did not humble your heart. You knew, but you did not humble your heart. You knew that there is a God, and you knew that even though you were an idolater, that God would spare you, and God would give you mercy and grace if you repented, but you did not humble your heart. He saw an idolatrous king come to worship the true God, and he saw God give him grace and mercy. He knew, but he did not humble his heart. He is unrepentant. And so what does the sovereign God do with unrepentant idol worshipers? He righteously judges them. He righteously judges them. This, this image of the the weight says you have been weighed and found wanting. It's, it's this image of the scales. And we've seen this image today. You know, you know what it looks like, the scales of justice, right? And you have one thing over here and one thing over here, and it needs to balance out. And, and he's saying you are weighed on that scale, and you are found wanting. You do not measure up. You're, the weight of your life is not measure up to the standard of God's righteousness. And what that means is that the judgment that God gives is a righteous judgment. It's not an unrighteous judgment. It's not a harsh judgment. It's not too severe. It's a righteous judgment. The sovereign God righteously judges unrepentant idolaters, unrepentant idol worshipers. It's a right verdict with a right punishment from the sovereign God for those who do not repent. And that's the main idea of this text. It's that the sovereign God will righteously judge unrepentant idol worshipers. That's a heavy main idea for a text. It's weighty. But there's full responses that we need to have, and and I believe that right now God wants us to not shy away from the weight of that text, but to press in to the weight of this truth. So the first response is think on the reality of God's judgment. Think on the reality of God's judgment. I want to read an excerpt from a book by Francis Chan called Erasing Hell. When I was in college, there was an author who wrote a book called Love Wins, and in this book he argued that in the end there will be no one in hell, that love will win, and that all will be saved. And Francis Chan wrote a book in response, basically saying as much as I might wish that were true, that's not what the Bible teaches. And this is from the introduction to that book. The saddest day of my life was the day I watched my grandmother die. When that EKG monitor flatlined, I freaked out. I absolutely lost it. According to what I knew of the Bible, she was headed for a life of never-ending suffering. I thought I would go crazy. I've never cried harder. I don't ever want to feel like that again. Since that day, I've tried not to think about it, and it's been over 20 years. Even as I write that paragraph, I feel sick. I would love to erase hell from the pages of Scripture. How about you? Have you ever struggled with hell 
as I have? Do you have any parents, siblings, cousins, or friends who, based on what you've been taught, will end up in hell? What a chilling thought. Until recently, whenever the idea of hell and the, and the idea of my loved ones possibly heading there crossed my mind, I would brush it aside and I'd divert my thinking to something pleasant. Now listen to this. While I've always believed in hell with my mind, I tried to not let the doctrine penetrate my heart. While I've always believed in hell with my mind, I tried to not let the doctrine penetrate my heart. And he goes on to, to say, and this is true, that, that this is not a doctrine that we can just believe with our minds and not allow to penetrate our hearts. If we believe in hell with our minds but do not let it penetrate our hearts, we will be weak gospel Christians. We'll be very weak gospel Christians. We will not pursue the glory of God and the joy of all people if we do not let the doctrine of God's judgment penetrate our hearts. And so what we need to do now is we need to think on the reality of God's judgment. We need, to, we need to let ourselves sit on it and consider it as hard as it might be because we know people, real people, who this has to do with. But let's take those three words, those three terms that God revealed to Belshazzar and just think about them. Numbered, weighed, divided. Numbered, weighed, divided. So first, numbered. Now notice that that's the word that appears twice on the wall. Numbered, numbered. It's like God's, God's emphasizing this, numbered. And, and Daniel says, God has numbered your days. God has numbered your days. He, he, he just told him, this is the God in whose hand is your breath. And he has numbered your days. The, the translation is, that you're alive today, right now, because God has given you today, and you don't know how many more days he's given you. That, that's what that means. You're alive right now because God has given you life today, and you have no idea how many more days you have. And, and we are so, so easy at ignoring that reality. It's so easy for us, we're so good at ignoring the reality that we do not know how many days we have on this earth. And we act like we have a lot of time. And even if we do live what would be a normal lifespan, is that really comforting? Is that really comforting if, if that's all you're living for? If you're just building a life for here and now? What, the life you are building will end. God's given you today, and he's numbered your days, and it will end. Which means that we need to realize our, our whole life is given to us by God. That, that, that's the first thing that we need to just take in. Our, our lives are given to us by God. And every person needs to know that. Your life is given to you by God. Your life is not your own. You have a creator who is giving you life today, and he's giving you every day. And one day, your life here and now will end, and eternity will begin. It could be in 40 years. It could be in four hours. What's to stop a drunk driver from slamming into your car later today? Nothing. God has numbered your days, and we do not know when it will end. Second is weighed. Weighed. I, I said this already, this, this idea of being weighed is this idea of scales, right? And it's, it's you know, one weight on one side and one weight on the other, and what's going to weigh more than the other? 
And, and what this text is teaching is that when our days run out, when our lives that God has given us, when those days are finally out and our numbered days are over, that we're going to be weighed on the scales of God's righteousness. Every one of us will be weighed by God. And here's the thing, there are a lot of people who believe in God who think that what will be weighed is my good deeds versus my bad deeds. What's going to be weighed is all the good I've done versus, versus the bad things I've done. And a lot of people think that because of that, well, I've done more good than bad. And so when I'm weighed on the scales of God's justice, I will, I will not be found wanting. They, they, they feel confident and assured because they say, even though I've done some bad things, I've done more good things, I've been a pretty good person, people like me aren't judged. But that is not what's being weighed on the scales of God's righteousness. What's being weighed is the weight of God's glory on one side. The weight of who God is. The weight of his worth. The weight of his infinite worth. And the weight of your life. How you responded to who he is. If you lived to honor him and glorify him and worship him. That's what's being weighed. Did your life match the weight of the glory of God. That's what it means that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We will all be weighed and found wanting because like Belshazzar, every one of us has not glorified God but has exchanged the truth of God for a lie and we've worshipped created things rather than the creator. And so on that day, when, when our days that are numbered run out and we are weighed by God, we will all be found wanting because we did not Glorify God, and the weight of his glory will just go thump on this side, and there'll be nothing holding it back over here. Our lives have no weight compared to the glory of God. We have not glorified him. Your life is given to you by God, and you are accountable to God. You are accountable to God. That's, that's what's important to know about this term weight. It means that every person, every one of you and every person you know, is accountable to God. For your life. And divided, in, in the text, divided is the term that's actually used for the judgment. That's, that's the judgment on Belshazzar, the immediate judgment, your kingdom is divided. But this term, what it's speaking to us, is of God's righteous judgment. You will be judged. Your life is given to you by God. You are accountable to God. And because you will be found wanting, you will be judged. And I just want to say three things about hell before we say anything else. Because that's what judgment is. That's what, that's what true ultimate judgment is. It, it is that God condemns sinners, unrepentant idolaters to hell. Here's three things that we need to just understand and submit to from God's word. One, hell is biblical. Just need to submit to that together. Hell is in the Bible. Hell is taught in the scriptures. Hell was taught by Jesus. Hell was taught by Paul. Hell is a biblical truth that we cannot do away with. Cannot do away with and cannot compromise. Second, what, what is it? Just the simplest yet clearest definition that I can give is hell is the punishment of eternal conscious suffering apart from God. What is hell? Hell is the punishment of eternal conscious suffering apart from God. It's eternal in that it never ends. 
and that after thousands and thousands and thousands of years, you are not closer to the end than when you began. It is eternal. It is, it is as eternal as eternal life. It's conscious. It's the, 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 it, people in hell know what's happening. They know where they are. They know what they've done. They are experiencing their suffering. And that's the next word. It is suffering. It's not vengeful suffering. It's not angry God making people suffer out of, out of spiteful vengeance. It is a righteous verdict given. And that means suffering. And the Bible only uses images to describe this suffering. It uses images of a fire that never runs out. It uses images of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the point of those images is not to say this is exactly what it is. It's to say this is the most we can do to describe what hell will be like. We can't imagine the type of suffering that will be in hell. But here's the reason why it will be suffering. Because it is apart from God. That's why hell will be suffering. Because it is apart from the Creator. It's apart from the only source of anything good and true and beautiful in all of creation is our God. And it's apart from Him. Hell is biblical, and it is the punishment of eternal conscious suffering apart from God. And again, I feel like we need to underscore this, that that, that hell, it is the righteous judgment of an infinitely holy God. We cannot comprehend how hell and how an eternity of being in hell is righteous. We can't comprehend it. Because at some point in our human minds, and our finiteness, we feel like at some point, isn't that enough? <laughs> at some point, shouldn't the penalty have been paid? I mean, forever and ever and ever? At some point, isn't, isn't the punishment Enough? Haven't they paid their dues? And the truth is we cannot comprehend it, but what we can comprehend is that God is a God of infinite holiness. We can comprehend the fact that we, we can't know how holy he is. His holiness goes beyond anything we could ever imagine, that if you transgress infinite holiness, then there is no end to the punishment against that holiness. Does that make sense? Because he's an infinitely holy God, the punishment is eternal, or else justice will not have been satisfied. And he is a righteous and just God. It is the righteous judgment of an infinitely holy God. We need to think on the reality of God's judgment because if we don't, then we will live thankless lives. We will live fearful lives. We will live disobedient lives. We will forget the very essence of the gospel if we don't think on this. But the story of the Bible and the story of the gospel is not a story of judgment. It's a story of salvation. See, even though the story of judgment says that God in his sovereignty and his righteousness and his holiness and his justice judges sinners, the story of the Bible is that God is gracious. 
He's a gracious God, that He is a loving God, He is a merciful God. When God reveals Himself to Moses, He says, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving transgressions, maintaining love to thousands. And then He says, In punishing the guilty. So God is a just God, but he's a gracious, loving, merciful God. And that means that the story of the Bible is that God, who is just and who is righteous and who will punish sin, has made a way of salvation from his judgment. And so the second response is when we read a text like this, is that we need to thank God for providing salvation from his judgment. Thank God for providing salvation from his judgment. And you know that is ultimately what we are saved from. Saved, when God sees us from our sin, He's saving us from the judgment of hell that we were to experience because of our sin. And, and here's what God did. He sent His Son to live the righteous life that we have not lived. He sent His Son to, to live a life that had the weight of glory that God does. To live a life that when you put it on the scales of justice, weighed perfectly with the weight of God's glory. And then that son who lived that life, he, he, he sent him to bear the judgment of idolaters like you and me. He sent him to, to bear the wrath that we just described. He sent him to take on what we just said we all deserve. The righteous verdict of God for guilty sinners. And, and, and that is what Jesus did on the cross. And then he raised him from the dead. He demonstrated that it's accomplished. He demonstrated that, that this Savior has borne the sins of idolaters, that, that he has accomplished the work of atonement. And now what God does is he calls idol worshipers everywhere to repent and to trust in Christ for salvation from judgment. And if you repent and trust in Christ, Scripture says God will justify you which means he will count the weight of Christ's righteous life as yours. So when you die, when your days are numbered and you run out of time and you stand before God's judgment seat and he puts your life on the scales of justice, even though by yourself God's glory would outweigh your life, he'll put the weight of Christ's righteous life on your account and you will not be found wanting. You will not be found wanting. You will have an everlasting relationship of grace with your God. And so if you do not no, God, if you have not done this, then this morning repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Do it today because your days are numbered and you don't know how much more time you have. So it's urgent and it's real. Repent of your idolatry and trust in Christ. Don't, don't repent and try to do better because you're, you can never get back to even. <laughs> You can never get back to even by what you do with your life. All you can do is say, I have failed, but Jesus hasn't. And I'm going to trust in what he did to forgive me of my sins. I'm going to trust in his life on my account. Repent and trust in Christ today. And if you've done that, then thank God for providing salvation from his judgment. Do you see why it's so important to think on God's judgment? If you're a believer, if you don't think on God's judgment, then, then it's so easy to forget how great our salvation is. So easy to forget what God has saved us from because we're never, we're never going to know it. We're never going to experience God's judgment. But God has, God has revealed what it's like to us so we can know what he saved us from. So thank God for providing salvation from his judgment. 
There's two more responses in this text that we need to see. This third one, it might be, it's a little counterintuitive to us, but it's, it's take comfort in the deliverance that will come through God's judgment. Take comfort in the deliverance that will come through God's judgment. The reality of God's judgment is meant to be a comfort to God's people. Now, before we were God's people, the reality of God's judgment is not a comfort to any one of us. The reality of God's judgment is a terrifying reality that we face. But once we are in Christ, then that judgment day, the day of the Lord, becomes a day of salvation for us. It's the day of deliverance. And listen, the book of Daniel was written to God's people who, who though they had returned from exile, they found themselves under foreign oppression still. They had returned back to the kingdom of God, but, but it was not the kingdom of God. It was still the kingdoms of this world, and they were still under foreign oppression. They were still waiting for deliverance. And Daniel wrote this book to them saying, God will judge those who oppress you. And he will deliver you. And he's able to do that. Be comforted in that hope. Listen, in in our day and age, in in our current cultural context, we don't experience what you might call severe oppression for being God's people. Not that we don't experience any, or that we won't experience more, but by and large, we've not experienced severe oppression. But that is abnormal, and that is temporary, and from the Colosseum 2,000 years ago to today in the Middle East and in other countries in the world, God's people have consistently experienced oppression and persecution from the world. That, that's the normal experience of an exile in this world, is that the world hates God's people and oppresses them and afflicts them. And this is a comfort to those Christians in the Middle East. And this should be a comfort to us as we pray with them and as we share with them what they are going through and and as we experience anything ourselves, that God will judge the evil in this world. Turn with me for a moment, because I I want you to see see this in clearer terms. 2 Thessalonians, book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. This is what it means to say that judgment is a comfort to God's people. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting verse 4, Paul's writing to this church, and he says, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So notice this church is experiencing affliction and persecution and they have faith and steadfastness in the midst of that. And here's what Paul says. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, 
when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So they are afflicted, and Paul is writing to comfort this persecuted, afflicted church, and he's saying there is a day coming when God will judge those who are afflicting you, and he will righteously afflict them because they've afflicted you. And on that day, when that happens to them, that's a day of salvation for you. You are going to marvel at the glory of Christ on that day. Now, the hard part is, when we think about this, is that it's one thing to think just in general terms about faceless afflictors, but this story in Daniel shows a real person, and in our lives there are real people, and if that's going to happen someday, it's going to happen to real people with real lives and real faces and real relationships. Jesus will come and afflict them, and through that judgment, he will deliver us. It's a comfort, but it's It's a heavy comfort. It's a heavy comfort to know that one day real people will be judged and that God will deliver us through that judgment. And so what what do we do with that then? This leads to the fourth response, the final response. Tell the truth to those who face God's judgment. Tell the truth to those who face God's judgment. Did you notice in that text in Thessalonians one of the descriptions of those who afflict is those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These people who are afflicting the Thessalonians are those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, which means that they've heard the gospel and they've rejected it. Which means that someone in those Thessalonian churches came to these afflictors and said, there's a way of salvation, and they rejected it. But it means that someone told them the truth. And in this text, we we, we noticed this earlier, Daniel could have just gone straight into the interpretation and been done with it. But no, Daniel takes time to confront the king, to explain who God is, to explain what he's done, and to explain the punishment. Why does he do that? Why did God even give this message to Belshazzar in the first place? He could have just done it. (laughs) Could have just done it. Just killed him that night. But no, God, God spoke to him. Daniel spoke to him because of God's desire that all would hear and repent. Which means that for us, while while we face the reality of God's judgment, while we think about it, and while we thank God that he saved us from it, and while, while part of us looks forward to the day that God will come and judge this world and save us out of it, right now, he's not doing that. Right now, he's left us in this world. Right now is the day of salvation, not the day of judgment which means that right now is the day where we tell the truth so that those who are facing God's judgment can be saved. And so what we need to do is tell them the truth about God. Tell them the truth about God. Notice what Daniel says. He says, he is the most high God. He's the Lord of heaven. He is the God in whose hand is your breath. Tell the truth about God to the people in your life. Tell them that there is only one God. He's your God. He's the most high God. And tell them, and, and, and you're breathing right now because this God gave you life. Make sure they understand who this God is. Make sure they understand that he created them and he sustains them and their lives are accountable to him. Tell them the truth about God. Tell them the truth about idolatry. Tell them the truth that the things they are worshiping are not God's. 
Tell them the truth that the things they are worshiping are only going to bring judgment on their lives. Tell them that they are wasting their lives worshiping false gods instead of the true God. Confront them about idolatry. Tell them the truth about judgment. The world thinks that it is the most hateful thing for us to say that God is going to judge you. But, but if you think about what we've just looked at, it is the most loving thing we can do to tell someone that they are facing eternal wrath. And if they do not repent, they will experience it. The most loving thing we can do, and it does not matter if they say we're hating them when we do it. It does not matter. We're loving them when we tell them that. So tell them the truth about judgment, and then, then tell them the truth about Jesus. Tell them the truth about salvation. But don't jump there. Don't skip ahead to that. Don't, don't run to Christ before they understand that they have a God they're accountable to, that they have sinned, they're responsible for, that they have a judgment they are facing. Then tell them the gospel. Then tell them about salvation. And then trust God to do his work. The truth is that God is a sovereign God, and he is able to humble any heart. And we need to obey what he calls us to do, speak the truth, pray, and trust him to do his work. Rather than shrink back from the reality of God's judgment, let it penetrate your heart and press in to what God shows you when he does that. So, so here, let's just conclude this way. Think about those final three applications. Thank God for saving you from judgment. Be comforted by the reality of his future judgment, delivering us through judgment. Speak the truth. Let's just think about those three in a, in a different light. Why are we so thankless for the gospel? What is it that causes us to, to think about the gospel and to not have thankfulness well up inside of our hearts? I think one reason is that we don't let the doctrine of God's judgment penetrate our hearts. We forget what he saved us from. Why are we fearful in this world? It's because we've, we, we've not let the doctrine of God's judgment penetrate our hearts so that we know he's, he is in control. He's going to judge. We, we, we don't allow ourselves to think about it and then we're afraid of this world, and we're afraid of what's happening, and we don't trust God. Why, why don't we speak the truth to those around us who are facing God's judgment? Because we don't allow ourselves to think about God's judgment enough. It's, it's heavy, and it's hard, but it will make us a powerful people, a gospel people. We'll be people who actually have good news and sound like it's good news when we tell it to people, because we'll have the weight of the bad news on our hearts. It's heavy, but, but when we have the weight of judgment inside of us and pressing on us, then when we tell the good news, it will come across like the best news. It, it, and when we celebrate the gospel, our celebration will, will be full and true and, and glorious because we are letting ourselves realize this is what God has saved us from. And so we're going to take communion, and I'm going to ask the music team to come up, and, and the men who will be serving the bread, we're going to uh, transition straight into communion from this. And, and what I want to say as we close and transition into communion is that this is a time where we not only remember that Christ saved us, but we remember that Christ saved us by bearing God's judgment for us. When we take communion, when we, when we chew the bread, we are understanding that Christ is being crushed in our place. When we drink the wine, 
when we drink the cup, we realize that Christ drank the cup of God's wrath for us. So when we celebrate communion, we're not just celebrating salvation, we're celebrating salvation through God's judgment of Christ. And as we do that, that will lead us to a sweet celebration of our Savior. As we do that, that will lead us to, to sing and to pray and to revel in our gracious God. And so if you've repented and trusted in Christ, if, if you are trusting in Christ now as your righteousness and your Savior, you're welcome to participate today. As we take the Lord's Supper, thank God that you will never experience his judgment. Thank God that, that Jesus experienced it in your place and that all that you ever will know is his grace. Let's take this together.